All right, turn to Jonah. Now, we did, a, did the whole background thing last week and uh, talked about where he came from and what was going on. Uh, I don't have slides again this week, and it is completely my fault because I didn't send them in time. Uh, but uh, as soon as I get more settled with what our weekends look like with going and, and getting them or, or meeting them and, and my week, we'll, uh, next week I almost promise we'll have slides on Sunday night to help out. Almost promise. Uh, I'm not going to go crazy on that. Jonah and the All About Me Church. Tonight we're getting into the, getting into the actual passage. Now remember, like I said last week, this is not going to be your typical sermon. We are going to just work through the scripture here. So uh, the plan is one through three, and who knows, we might even make it all the way through there tonight. But I promise, uh, does my watch, oh, that's the problem. My watch doesn't match the clock in the back. Well, clearly the clock in the back is fast. Um, Right? Uh, so we're going to work through that. So let's, uh, let's open up in, in prayer. God, I thank you that uh, regardless of, well, of course, regardless of the topic or the author, it's your word, that, that, that you, you have taken your word and it applies to us today from whether it's 28-ish hundred years ago, uh, about a reluctant, at least in this Situation, a reluctant, a reluctant prophet, uh, or any other story from Scripture, God, it still it hits us. It's right where we are today. I thank you that your word is living, that your word is uh, powerful from beginning to end uh, for every part of our lives, for uh, this generation of Christians and the next and generations ago, God, just thank you that your word continues to speak. That's the way you set it up, because, well, because you continue to speak. Uh, you, you have put your word here for us to, to mold our lives to, uh, to, to conform our lives to. Lord, thank you that you're doing incredible things in us still through your word, and I pray that is the case, that you continue to do incredible things through us in, your, in us, rather, through your word. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know, I hear them too. I was, was that? I still hear it. Yeah, it was pretty loud. It was, it, I don't know what it was. Okay, it's gone now. It was confusing me. Uh, so, all right, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's read that together. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. All right, like I said, we should get through this tonight, but we'll see. The word of the Lord. We have this idea of Jonah, uh, and, and I added to that idea a little bit last week with some of the comments that I made, that he was just, you know, he's a cast-off 
prophet. He's, uh, he wasn't doing his job. He, he, he wasn't, you know, he, he was the guy who, who, who got out of the ministry, but just, you know, nobody else would do this one job. And he said, okay, fine, it's me. That is the wrong image that we should have of Jonah. At this time, the word of the Lord didn't just come to anybody. If you're interested, someday you can, you can look and, and you can actually find the, uh, when, when God changed the way he spoke to people. In the Old Testament, beginning with, with Adam and Eve, he, he would speak directly to them. Spoke directly to Abraham. Uh, he spoke directly to Moses. But then, with Moses we begin to see him speak not directly to the people, to individuals. We see his conversation with Job. Uh, we, we see it to some extent a little later, but you're going to see with, with, with David. But, but David fill, uh, fits into a different category. With Moses, he starts speaking to his people through prophets. He no longer speaks directly to the people the way he does to... Uh, Adam and Eve, to, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You know, th- these people had conversations with God. But then he starts speaking with Moses, he starts speaking through the prophets. And David was a, a prophet, uh, so we see that he spoke to him. And, and we see uh, probably the, uh, we see Samuel, the, the first real prophet. Elijah, probably the penultimate uh, prophet, and, and these others. And, and we get to, to Jonah one of the prophets. Then we see a transition, though, in the book of Ezra. We see that God no longer speaks to his people through prophets as much. He does occasionally. But he begins to speak through Scripture. Because if you read Ezra, you find that, that Ezra begins to teach the people from the Scriptures. When they first started really showing up for preaching, right? They, they came and he taught the Bible to them, Ezra tells us. Then we have that for a number of years. Then the prophecy stops uh, after, after Malachi, around 330, 350, somewhere along in there, B.C., and there's not another prophet until John the Baptist. And that's why everybody's so amazed with John the Baptist, right? Because here's a prophet. Here's somebody that God has spoken to, and he, he speaks to us. And then with Jesus, we have truly the prophet, and God now speaks to us through Scripture, but actually He speaks through us truly through the Holy Spirit. God has now come back to speaking us to us directly, but He does it through His Holy Spirit. Jonah, in this chapter, uh, first verse of chapter 1, hears the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is not a time when God spoke through Scripture. This was not a time when God just spoke to everybody through the Holy Spirit. God spoke to individuals who were prophets. Remember I talked about, he was uh, a well-known uh, uh, prophet. We see here the word of the Lord is a clear word to Jonah. Jonah, if, if he wrote the book, had no doubt what God told him. Read it here in a, in a verse or two. He didn't, he didn't doubt what it was. God clearly spoke to him. He knew what God had said. It was an imperative word. Uh, we're going to see the, the verb tense is a command. Do this. Jonah knew that. It was a recognizable word. The word of the Lord came. 
Jonah knew without a doubt, this is God speaking to me. I recognize his voice. Why didn't he recognize his voice? He'd heard him talk before. He had had conversations with God before. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, again, when I said we, we, we cast aspersions on Jonah, and, and a lot of times, you know, maybe in, in a lot of ways, he might deserve those. But we need to look at Jonah as he's presented, and we don't do that very often. We just, we just call him the, the reluctant prophet or the, the failed prophet. Or well, I mean, he didn't fail. 120,000 uh, people got saved, repented from a one-sentence sermon. I don't call that a failed prophet. And y'all are thinking, please, one-sentence sermon would be awesome. That's what I preached this morning. It was just a run-on sentence with no punctuation. So see, you got your wish. It came to Jonah. Jonah is a true, faithful, successful prophet of God. Jonah told King Jeroboam, hey, by the way, Jeroboam, the, the, the uh, boundaries of Israel are going to be pushed back to where they were in the beginning. And you know what happened? The boundaries of Israel were pushed back to where they were at the beginning. He was a successful prophet. They didn't have to stone him. What he said would happen actually happened. He was, he was faithful. Read through Jonah again if you haven't. At what point did God ever, ever say, my unrighteous servant, my, my failed servant, my, my, uh, my failure of a prophet? He doesn't. They have a conversation. Jonah has an issue, but he is a true, faithful, successful prophet of God. Remember, Jesus used him as a positive example. Jesus could have said a number of things about Jonah. He could have said, you know, unlike Jonah, you need to go and you need to be obedient to God when he calls you to reach out to, and in this case, he probably would have used something like the Samaritans or the Romans. Don't be like Jonah. He didn't do that. Jonah was a positive example. He said, just like Jonah, I will be in the belly, uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, the fish for three days, I will be in the belly of the earth for three days. But wasn't it disobedience that put him in there? Well, actually, we're going we're gonna to get to that. What we're going to have to see eventually is that the fish was actually deliverance, not punishment. But we'll see that when we get there. Jesus' burial was deliverance, right? Deliverance for us. So it was, it was punishment in that it was our punishment placed on him, but for us it was deliverance. For the Ninevites, that, that fish swallowing Jonah was, was deliverance. But uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I don't want to do that. He, he's a positive example. His disobedience here in this book should not taint him as a failed prophet. Uh, how many of you would like a, a four-chapter book of the Bible written on that one time you disobeyed God? To our knowledge, that's what we have, is that one time Jonah disobeyed God, and we have a four-chapter book on it, 58 verses, I think I said 48 verses last week, 58 verses uh, of him being disobedient. But you know what he did in the end? 
He was obedient. Well, we'll get to all that. I just want to want to paint a, a picture here of, of a different Jonah than we might have when we go in. Uh, we don't know why he disobeyed either. I mean, we, we have an idea. He's going to say in chapter 4, I knew you'd do that. I knew you'd save them. But what was his issue with them? Well, we, we don't really know. He's not disciplined for anything except a lack of compassion. Now, why did he lack that compassion? We don't have uh, any record of it being because they were Assyrians, non-Jews, so we don't have racism as an issue for him. Uh, we don't have their, uh, their idolatry as an issue for, them, for him. All we have is what we know of the Ninevites and him saying, I really don't want to go. And initially, not going. Jonah, his name uh, means dove, actually. And it's really interesting if we, if we take his name to be symbolic, I mean, really his name, but, but names are never just names in the Bible. Uh, they, they almost always have something to do with the character of the person or their calling in their lives, on their lives. Uh, maybe he was the dove like the dove of, of Noah, a dove that, that showed rescue and peace. Remember, Noah sent the dove out, and the dove brought back an olive branch. And now an olive branch is a symbol of peace. Doves are symbols of peace. It was a symbol to Noah that the, uh, the waters were receding, God was healing the land. Maybe, maybe that's what Jonah is. He's a dove of rescue and peace to the Ninevites. It's, it's kind of nice. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, though, doves are talked about how they moan and lament. You ever heard a dove? Y'all, you've heard them, right? Sitting outside your window. And, I mean, they're just like the saddest creatures ever sounding. Just on and on and on. Uh, No wonder people want to shoot them. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe, because isn't this what... Jonah the dove does. He moans and laments. Oh, why did you save him, God? I knew you'd do that. It's just like you to, to, to be gracious. Moaning and lamenting the, the, the dove of Jonah. Doves were also a sacrifice. Right? You could, you could bring doves to the temple. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could bring a dove to the temple to be sacrificed. And that was set up way back in, in Leviticus Jonah sacrificed himself for the, the sailors. We're going to talk about that in a little while. I mean, not tonight, a little while, but you know, like 10 weeks, a little while. Uh, we're going to talk about that eventually. But he said, throw me over. That's the only way, guys. Get rid of me. Sacrifice me into the Mediterranean Sea, and then the storm will calm. He was a dove of, of sacrifice. But then the psalmist talks about a dove negatively, uh, I believe it was in Psalm 55, but don't quote me on that, where it talks about how the dove flees from terror. Well, doesn't that describe our Jonah dove as well? Fleeing from the terror, terror of the Ninevites. So regardless, we get a picture here of, of, of Jonah and you know, as his, in his role as a prophet in the court of Jeroboam, he may have been 
All of these things. He may have pronounced rescue and peace. He may have moaned and lamented because Jeroboam was not a good king. Uh, He may have spoken of the sacrifice that was necessary to to follow God or to flee the terror of coming judgment. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah, came to Dove, son of Amittai. And the word of the Lord said, get up, go. Arise, go. Two imperatives. The first one is almost an adverb of the second one. So it's really get up in a hurry, go in a hurry. With urgency, I need you to go, Nineveh, or uh, Jonah. I need you to go to Nineveh. I've got a job for you. So hop up. Let's go. Don't waste time. Come on. Let's get going. No room for argument here. No opportunity for Jonah at this point to say, well, but, you know, I was, I was doing this thing and, talk, and, and really I had some other plans because it's, well, football and I don't, and Nineveh, and no. And it, it was just, God didn't even leave it up. I mean, just look at the command, command. Get up, go. To the great city of Nineveh. Can you just see Jonah, his chest falling I mean, if, if, if God had said, Jonah, get up and go in the capital at this time, Samaria of the northern kingdom, even if he had said, get up and go to Jerusalem, go, get up and go to the southern kingdom, they didn't get along really well. Occasionally they did. Occasionally they fought. Get up and go to Jerusalem. Jonah would be, all right, Jerusalem. I wasn't born there, but, you know, not a bad place to visit. No, get up and go to that great City of Nineveh, God says in, chat, in verse 2. Now, great here most likely refers to the size of Nineveh. Uh, and, and great is used actually pretty often in the book of Jonah. Great city, great fish, uh, other things. It, it's, it comes across usually talking about its size, but it could be. It could be that God uses the word great is possibly trying to express the importance of Nineveh to him. Now, in, in, the, in the geopolitical realm of the era, at this time, if you remember last week, Nineveh is not as important as it had been. It will rise soon, uh, and it will become even more important than it had been. But right now, it's a, it's a little... It's a little low on the totem pulse. There is some even irony in what God's saying. That great city. So that, that leads us to believe that it, it's more about how God sees the city than uh, how Jonah or the rest of the world at the time saw the city. See, God has compassion for every lost person. 120,000 people-ish. In Nineveh, and every one of them are important to God. Every one of them is loved by Him. So if God said to someone here, Get up and go to that great city of sulfur, be like, God, it's not that big. No, it's not my point. Those 25, 30,000 people are all people I love that need my salvation. Get up and go to that great city of hot coffee, Mississippi. Not really a great city, God. Get up and go to that great city of cut-off Louisiana. Have you been there, God? Not that great 
of a city. Get up and go to that great city of Pandora, Texas. Population of about 85. Not that great. And God says, it is a city that I love. With people that I love. That need to hear my message. Therefore, it is a great city. This great city of Nineveh. Today, Nineveh is Mosul. If you, you, know, you keep up with the Iraq war, you've listened to all that, you hear about Mosul, that's Nineveh. That's where uh, Nineveh was. Nineveh was built by Nimrod, we find out, in uh, not a Nimrod, the Nimrod. There's a difference. There are a lot of Nimrods, uh, but there's only one Nimrod, right? Uh, he Built by him, we have ruins going back to at least 4500 B.C. in Nineveh. It is an ancient city. So in a lot of ways, it is, it is great, but primarily it is great because it is full of people that God loves. And then his message that he's supposed to take. Now, already it's a problem because he's got to go to Nineveh a few hundred miles away, and he doesn't like them anyway for, for whatever reason, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And he tells him he is told to preach against them. Preach against that great city of Nineveh. There's one instance, at least, in the Bible where someone was told to preach against an altar, and they preached against it, and that altar cracked. So that, that, there's, there's power in that command there to preach against the city. Preach against it so that it cracks. I, I contend that that is our responsibility as Christians in the world we live in today, to preach against sin until it cracks, to preach the gospel until hearts crack. That's what we're called to do. It's what Jonah was called to do. It's never an enjoyable message to preach against something. Oh, if I could stand up here every Sunday and just preach about love, how we're supposed to love everybody. I sound like a very well-known preacher to us, don't I? Uh, yeah, it would uh, be great. And that is a wonderful sermon to preach. And we are called to love. But sometimes God calls us to preach the hard things. Preach the things that not everybody wants to hear. Preach the things that are going to make some people mad. Preach some things that are going to make some people leave. Y'all, you had to do it, if you're a parent, you had to do it as parents. You didn't have to preach necessarily. You lecture. Same thing, some of y'all are thinking. Right? No difference there, bud. Um, but you have to say the hard things in order to get the point across, to teach. Preaching against Nineveh was never going to be an easy thing, and especially preaching against what God told them to preach against. Go and preach, to, preach against Nineveh, preach against it, because their wickedness has confronted me. Now, this word wickedness, y'all, it doesn't, it doesn't cover it. It doesn't connect. Uh, until social media and the 24-hour news cycle, along with groups like ISIS, we had not heard of, we didn't see this kind of evil. Let me read to you some of the things that uh, Ninevites were known for. And yes, this, is, uh, this commentator, as he wrote it, he has in parentheses here, warning what follows is rated R for gore and violence. And he's pretty close to right. Uh, records from Nineveh from the Assyrians, 
brag of live dismemberment. It was one of their favorite things to do. Except they would often leave one hand attached so they could shake it before the person died. Nice guys. They made parades of heads requiring friends of the deceased to carry them elevated on poles. They boasted of their practice of stretching live prisoners with rope so they could be skinned alive. Uh, The human skins were then displayed on city walls or on poles. They commissioned pictures of their post-battle tortures, where piles of heads, hands, and feet, heads and poles, heads to a stake were displayed. Uh, They pulled out the tongue and testicles of live victims and burned the young alive. Nice guys, right? You want them as neighbors. Uh, Those who survived the sack of their city were tied in long lines of enslavement, deported to Assyrian cities to labor on building projects. Uh, Tens of thousands suffered this fate over 250 years. The the kings would brag about um, one who was uh, about 100 years or so before Jonah, uh, Asher Nasserpal, if you want to, you know, name your kid that, um, wrote, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. I cut off the heads of their fighters and built with them a tower before their city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off their arms and hands. I cut off others, uh, their noses. I uh, caught off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city, and I think you get the idea. So this word wickedness doesn't really do it justice, does it? We, we saw some of that in the concentration camps of World War II. Uh, what, what the Germans did... Uh, in, in their experiments on Jews and others. We, uh, I, know, I believe Japan did some of the same stuff too in their prison camps. We saw some of that, but we thought that was an anomaly. And then, then we come along and we have groups like ISIS and others that, that do now some of these same things because they're, they're really just following in the footsteps of, of these predecessors. Wickedness. And God says, take my message, well, he doesn't say it at this point, but it's a message of repentance to these people. I compared it last week to being called to go to that kind of group today, to, to go into the, the heart uh, of an ISIS-controlled uh, territory to preach God's repentance. You know there are people that do that, right? There, there really are. And what if they got saved? Well, that was, that was Jonah's issue, really. What if they got saved? They don't deserve to be saved. But that's for a few weeks. So, front them, preach against it, uh, preach against their wit- wickedness, because it has confronted me. Their wickedness has confronted me, the end of verse 2. And this is probably where we'll stop. We won't get to verse 3 tonight. No act goes unseen by God. Which really makes verse 3 kind of, you, you, you question Jonah's sanity there. If you read ahead a little bit and he's trying to get away from God. But it's not exactly what we think. We'll, we'll get there next week. 
But no act goes unseen by God. There, there's nothing that, that you do. Again, you don't want your one act of disobedience to be a four-chapter book in the Bible. And yet God sees it just as clearly as he has seen Jonah's act of disobedience. He's, he's seen all of them. All of your acts of disobedience. And I don't mean to imply that Jonah was perfect except for this one issue. I guarantee you he was not. But we still, we have this idea that some things that we do go unheeded by God. Well, I didn't get it struck down that time. He must not have noticed. I mean, that, that, we would never say that. Well, some of us would say that, right? But, but we'd never, most of the time we wouldn't vocalize it, but that's kind of how we feel. He didn't do anything, so eh, slipped that one past him. No. No, you didn't. What we also see here is that no act of, uh, no evil act goes unpunished by God. And that's true. Uh, there's, there's almost always punishment. Except, wait a minute, but Michael, don't they repent and, and get out of their destruction? Yeah, exceptions are made for repentance. But if we, if we look at Nineveh's history, or their, their future from this point, we find that, no, they still... They still got their punishment. It just came later than anybody would have thought. Not the, the 40 days that, that Jonah went in and, and told them about. We look at what Jonah had to do, and I'm afraid we scoff, him, scoff at him a little bit and say, how in the world? I mean, God clearly told him to go. <laughs> y'all, please don't do that. Because y'all... He clearly told us to go. And how many people did you witness to this week? I can tell you how many I did. Zero. But he clearly told me to go. So we can be harsh. We can be too harsh. As we move through Jonah, let's make sure we're taking the lessons as he gives them, as God gives them, in Scripture to us. Let's not make Jonah any worse than he really is, and let's, let's certainly not think that we have got the market cornered on obedience. Because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to assume here that, uh, that we would find some disobedience among us. So, my, my challenge tonight, if I, if I have to have a challenge, and I won't have one every week, Scripture challenges us, challenges us enough. But my challenge to you would be, go to that great city of sulfur. And tell them, repent. The Lord's judgment is at hand. It, it may not be tomorrow. It may not be next week or 40 days. But for each individual, we don't know how much longer we have. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So we don't know that our judgment isn't Impending, impending, just a few hours away. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen people who, uh, on up in years, maybe, maybe they don't know Jesus as Savior. Something happens. Uh, Alzheimer's, uh, dementia, uh, some, uh, a stroke, something that that slows them down mentally. And I think, I worry, I wonder, 
Did they ever accept Christ? Now they may not. They, 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 they don't have the mental capacity to make the, the choice. So what I'm saying is death is not the only end of your opportunity to choose Christ. There are others. So with the urgency that we hear God call Jonah, we need to go as well. Go to that great city of sulfur and share the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again that that your scripture still speaks. I pray that as we work through these passages word for word, word by word, Lord, that you will will magnify scripture to us, uh, open our hearts to, to see our own disobedience, our own failures, to know that, Lord, you offer us the second chance just like you did Nineveh, the third chance, the fourth chance. Lord, when we have been disobedient as Jonah was, we have the opportunity to turn that around and be obedient. God, thank you for this time where you come among us, you bring us, and you speak to us. God, we love you and we praise you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.